bonjour all you gardening cats and gators. Welcome to Garden with Cisco on the August 25th show. So holy cats, August has almost bit that dust. It feels like fall out there to say the least. Hey, I have a great guest. I'm going to introduce him in just a minute. As always, I want to say hi to all the folks I spoke to last week. And all you folks that came to the Highline Botanical Garden Ice Cream Social, that was so fun. And uh, it was really great being back there. I haven't been to the uh, Highline Botanical Garden for a couple years now, and um, it just looked great. So, uh, and nice-sized crowd, so just a really good time. Thanks so much for coming. Hey, and then uh, Mary and I uh, led a tour uh, to the auction winner from the mustard seed uh, project on Key Peninsula, that they were the high bidder at uh, one of those auctions. And what they do is they try to help to make sure all seniors have somewhere to live at, over there in Key Peninsula. And I think it's a really neat organization. So I was really happy to help it out. We had a wonderful tour to garden and. Uh, I uh, enjoyed some good wine as well. <laughs> That's the most important part, you know. Okay. Hey, and uh, all right. I Last night, you know, last week I had my good buddy, Nita Joe Roundtree, on the show with me. We were talking about arts in the garden that's happening today at the Bellevue Botanical Garden. It goes tomorrow, too. And uh, it goes from 10 to 5 both days. And uh, so uh, I was at the big pre-party last night, and I got to see all the art. Mary and I walked around, looked at the art in the garden, and uh, it's just fantastic. So uh, it's a wonderful way to get to go see art in a beautiful garden. You can't beat it. And, uh, of course, the artists are all there to talk about their art, sell their art, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So, hey, today at 2 o'clock, I'm leading a tour of the garden, so we'll see most of the artists, and and uh, I'll introduce you to some really cool plants in the garden, and of course, I'll answer all your garden questions. So that's going to be a lot of fun, and I'll see you, and there may be a surprise, but I don't know if it's going to happen yet, so I don't want to say what it is, just in case. Okay. Hey, uh, also, just so you know, tomorrow, I'm going to be down in Chehalis, for the Washington State Garlic Festival. So that's at the fairgrounds down there. And uh, I've never been to the Washington State Garlic Festival before, but they say they have garlicious food <laughs> and a lot of fun. So uh, there's great entertainment. So I think it, it's going to be a lot of fun. Hey, I'm going to be down there at 11.30 a.m., okay? So uh, just skip Skip church, you need a break anyway. So come to my talk. All right. So that should be a lot of fun. Okay. Now, I want to introduce my guest right now. His name's Merrill Peterson. Hey, Merrill, how you doing? Hey, Cisco. Great to see you after all these years. <laughs> hey, I know. It's really great to have you on. Now, you're the professor and chair of and insect collection curator of the biology department at Western Washington University. You're also an adjunct professor in entomology for the uh, for the entomology department at WSU. When do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I get some sleep every now and then. Oh, man, that's too great. Yeah, so I remember meeting you way back 
when I first started going to the Scarabs, which is a, a group of folks that are really interested in insects and really like them, and oh, those were the funnest meetings I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> yeah, they were a hoot. I think I was a teenager at the time. Oh, man, isn't that amazing? Jeez, yeah. And uh, Rod Crawford, the spider guy, still kind of runs it. Sharon Coleman's always there. Yeah. A lot of fun. So those were good days. Yeah. Yeah, and I remember you were one of those young people who was really interested in bugs, and look what it did. <laughs> I guess I never grew up, right? How did you get so interested in insects? Boy, I've actually been interested in insects for pretty much my whole life. My my parents tell me that when we went to the zoo, I would spend more time looking at the bumblebees in front of the tiger and, and lion <laughs> exhibits than at the uh, big cats themselves. Uh, but it was re- it was really a trip to the Denver Museum of Natural History that sort of hooked me, and and we went there when I was eleven years old, and oh. and there was this room full of butterflies of of the Rocky Mountain area, and oh. it just blew my mind all that diversity of insects, and it's kind of been with me ever since. Well, you wrote this incredible book that I've been going through this week quite a bit, and it's. Uh, Pacific Northwest Insects, it's a field guide for Northwest gardeners. Yeah, it's it's a field guide that will allow all sorts of people to identify insects uh, in gardens, but also in natural areas around the area. So it's, it's useful for hikers and educators, but um, gardeners will find it particularly useful for identifying what kinds of insects are crawling around in their gardens and on their plants. Yeah, and you know, that that's the thing that's sometimes missing for gardeners, you know. I get a lot of people bring a bug to my talks and go, what the heck is this? Cause, but if they had your book, I think they'd have no problem identifying that insect. Yeah, well, my hope is that people will get over that first reaction of see an insect, want to squash it, and maybe pause <laughs> a moment and ask themselves, is this an insect that might actually be helping me? Yeah. And, and so being able to tell the good guys from the bad guys, I think, is one of the really important things that this book has to offer. You know, uh, I once, one time, I, I can't remember, an entomologist told me that if we uh, walked into a typical Western Washington back garden, we'd probably be able to find at least a thousand different kinds of insects. How many of those are really harmful? Not very many. Hardly any. Yeah, huh? yeah. Most of the insects that you'd find in your yard are probably just passing through uh, if you were to survey them all. But there are lots and lots of them that are beneficials. They're pollinating plants. They're uh, processing dead organic matter that accumulates in, in yards. So most of them, I'd say more of them are doing us favors than are doing us harm. Yep. You know, it's funny. Uh, just yesterday, uh, my sister-in-law showed me a picture on her phone. It was a, a banded alder borer. You know, and those are the coolest looking bugs I've ever seen and, uh, you know, I was able to show it to her in your book. <laughs> Those are among my favorites. They're just gaudy as heck. They look like something out of the tropics. Yeah, so uh, black and white checkers almost. It's quite a cool-looking insect. But insects are so fascinating, aren't they? Yeah, they lead all kinds of really incredibly varied lives. You know, they some of them are restricted to high mountaintops. Some of them have these bizarre life cycles where they, like one of my favorites are these things called mantid flies, which look sort of like a cross between a praying mantis and a lacewing. And 
as a larva, they actually develop as parasites on spiders. They Holy cats! They sort of live like a tick on a spider. Wow. And then as that spider starts to lay its eggs in an egg sac, they actually disembark from the spider and crawl into the egg sac. And then they complete their development. Do they eat the eggs? They feed on the brood of the spider. Wow. And then eventually they'll crawl out of the spider's egg sac. And and I I don't know, that weird life cycle just fascinates me and also probably explains why mantid flies are so rare. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure if I've ever seen one. I know I didn't have one in my insect collection when I used to have so many of them. So I'm going to read the section about that in your uh, Pacific Northwest Insects book. That's one of the things I love. You have great descriptions about uh, almost every type of insect in there. A lot of great information that I think people will find totally fascinating. Well, my hope is is that people can start to understand that our insects are really, really cool. And, and you know how, how people really gravitate toward the organisms that they know, wildflowers and birds and, and butterflies, the familiar. And, and my hope is that this book really helps these these crazy insects that we have in the area become familiar and become endeared to people. Yeah. All right. We're going to talk more about this book. So my guest is Merrill Peterson, and he's come, come all the way down from Bellingham at Western Washington University today. So, uh, all right. Um, we will be right back. 97.3 Cairo FM. Welcome back. And uh, so, as I said before, my guest is Merrill Peterson, professor, chair, and insect collection curator of the biology department at Western Washington. He's also associated with WSU and uh, is quite the expert on insects. So if you have a question, uh, please feel free to call in one triple eight nine seven three cairo one triple eight nine seven three five four seven six. Doesn't have to be about bugs, but if you got a bug question, this is your best chance to get it, uh, uh, you know, answered. It's pretty tough when people describe bugs. It's like when they describe plants. It's so hard to figure out what they are. And then I get home, my wife will go, it was, uh, you know, it was a uh, uh, chef Laura, you fool, you know. <laughs> But so if you got a question, don't hesitate. Or if you find an interesting uh, insect, you know, we might be able to figure out what it is. I'm not guaranteeing anything here, but we might be able to. Okay, well, um, so hey, I got a question for you. So we talked about, you know, people can identify the insects in here. And you've got it color-coded, which is really nice. So you learn where, like, the stoneflies are or the beetles are. And you could find them. But what makes your uh, your field guide different than others? Well, one of the things that I've always been frustrated with about insect field guides is that they're overly general. And so they'll show you a picture of an insect and you won't have any idea if there are 30 other species that sort of look like it or if it's the only one of its kind that looks at all like that. And so I tried to fix that with this book. And I tried to write species accounts where 
if there were other similar species, I would say so. And I would say how you distinguish them from, from this particular species that's been featured. So in all, it's got a huge diversity, this field guide. I've got about 1,200 feature, featured species. Shush. And then if you include all the similar species that are mentioned, the book really allows you to identify about 3,000 species of, of insects. Yeah, that's pretty amazing to say the least. Now, these are all insects are from the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, and so the way I define Pacific Northwest is all of Washington, all of Oregon, all of Idaho, and then the southern part of BC, the northern part of California, and the western part of Montana. Which makes sense because that's kind of the areas where people are going to see them, and you know, and and because uh, insects are fairly specific. I mean, I know there must. I'm sure there's. Uh, ground beetles in Wischeeskin, you know, because I remember seeing them when I grew up and they're here. But a lot of times it'll just be slightly different or different species. Yeah, that's right. We've got our own unique insect fauna here. And and certainly we share a lot of species with other areas, but we've got a lot of things that are only found in this area. And every region has its own unique set of, of of native organisms and and insects are a really diverse part of that. And you know, we were talking before that uh, we got a lot of calls, so we're going to take one in a minute. But uh, we were talking before. We'll probably take that call right after the news. So don't hang up, Melinda. Whatever you do, okay. And then we'll get to you too, Steve. So, uh, but we were talking about that. So many insects are actually helpful to gardeners. And and to all humans and other animals, you know. But one thing I love is you describe when you talk about an insect, you tell if it's going to be a help in your garden. You know, that's a big help to be able to read about it and find out that, wow, I thought that thing was eating my plants, but it's eating the bad bugs that are eating my plants. Right. Yeah, there are lots of pretty nasty-looking beneficial insects, and so— <laughs> We might react feeling like there's they're something to be gotten rid of, but in fact, these guys are helping us out, and they're, they're our, our hired assassins, basically, out there. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Like uh, stink bugs, there's beneficial stink bugs, and I don't think many people are aware of that. Yeah, there's some that eat caterpillars, and you can find them every now and then with their little uh, their beak poking into a caterpillar, sucking them like, like it's a drinking straw. That is the coolest thing there is to see something like that. I just love that. <laughs> yeah, and the way lace wings just, uh, you know, scarf down. Oh, I mean, it's really fun to watch beneficial insects devour bad guys. Yeah, and they can wipe them out in a hurry. When I, when I was an undergrad, I was studying some aphid populations over near the Yakima River, and they were just all over this wild buckwheat over there. And then I went back a week later, and there wasn't an aphid to be seen. The ladybugs had just eaten them all up. Yeah, you know, uh, we had, and we're going to take a break in about a second here, we had um, billions of aphids on Daphne Odora, that very fragrant, wonderful plant at Seattle U, and one of my gardeners came in, was grabbing the soap bottle. You know, she was going to go and do them in. I said, well, what, what is it on you? Where is it? She goes, on the Daphne Odora. There's a billion aphids on there. I said, let's go look at it. Saw these little teensy surfed fly larvae, and uh, those things, they're blind. They just grab an aphid, suck the juice out of it in the I read that in the lab, they've been found to be able to eat one aphid per minute. That's crazy. Oh, la, la. The whole problem was gone in about a week. 
Oh, so cool. All right, listen, we're going to talk bugs, but of course you call in about any question you have today. But uh, Melinda, when we get back from the news from Gig Hire, we're going to pop you right on the air with us, okay? And everybody, you're listening to 97.3 Cairo FM. Okay, hey, we're going to go to the phones here. So, Melinda from Gig Harbor, welcome to Garden with Cisco. Hi. Hi, Cisco. Howdy. Um, I have a question about which our bug man here can help with. Is um, <laughs> I believe around my mason bee boxes, I have what's called that chalcid wasp. Mm-hmm. And it's going into my bee box, my mason bees and... Uh, they're around them all the time, really fast-moving little flying bugs. And I actually think I saw the queen, or one of the females, and it had its that long uh, protruding, um, they call it an ovipositor. Ovipositor, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so is that a good bag or a bad bug? Because I don't know what to do for my mason bees now. I mean, there's... But too fast. To this is a great question. <laughs> so from the perspective of the mason bees, it's a bad bug, that's for sure. Um, yeah. I've, I've heard that one thing that people do sometimes with, with mason bees is they move the nest sites around um, so they, don't, they try not to have the bees reuse the same spot each year. And that tends to help keep those natural enemies guessing as to where to look. You know what else I did? I took uh, some of my blocks and I took them down because by now they're all in there. You know, you don't have yeah. to worry about leaving them out. And I stuck them in the garage. Yeah, and keep so them safe. The and- wasps didn't have such an easy shot at them. There you go. That's a good idea. What you do know I do what? With the bee boxes now. <laughs> and Melinda, there's one funny story I could tell you too because uh, one time. Uh, do you know Brian Griffith, the guy that wrote the book about Orchard Mason bees? We haven't met, no. Oh, he's a wonderful guy. And uh, so one time I had all these mason bee blocks out, and I I look over, and there's these, um, uh, what do you call them, uh, woodpeckers pecking in there, eating the mason bees in their little cocoons in there. So I, I ran in the house, I called Brian, and I said, Brian... There's a whole bunch of woodpeckers eating the uh, uh, little uh, bees in my box. He goes, don't worry about it, Cisco. said, the female is really smart. Mama Nature's too smart for this. She puts all the female eggs way in the back of the block. Us males, evidently, they only need a couple of us. So <laughs> they stick us out on the outside. We're the sacrificial males. So maybe you're still going to get a bunch either way, you know. Yeah, my guess is you'll still you'll still get a lot of them. Um, and I don't know. My my view on this whole thing is if you create a lot of of mason bee habitat, then you can have lots of mason bees and enjoy that extra diversity that comes when their natural enemies come to try to find them. And Nick Newman wasps do a lot of good things, right? They're yeah, Nick Newman wasps do a lot of pollination. Uh, I don't know if these particular chalcids do do that sort of thing, but I oh I'm, I forgot I'm, these I'm are guessing chalcids. that they do. Oh, okay. Yeah. 
So these could yeah, be these more troublesome. Childhood, I believe. Oh yeah, yeah, I forgot. So uh, yeah, so I that really worked for me. Moving them into the garage solved the whole problem. Well, if I move them in the garage, will they escape and be in my garage? I don't I mean, think the, so. um, no, because they walk? won't. They won't hatch out till next spring. So you just got to make sure you put them out. You know. As soon as the fruit trees are starting to get a little bit of action, like I used to put mine out March 1st always. Yeah, and I would say you want to make sure you've got a cool spot in your garage so that they actually don't try to come out too early. They hatched in my car. I was taking them to do a garden (laughs) talk once. (laughs) That was exciting. (laughs) Well, that was a great question. Do you have a question about hydrangea as well? I do. I do. You know, I have uh, this. The big ball, uh, I can't remember what you call them, but the big blue hydrangeas. And I tried, you know, spinning them out, like you say, a third of it and cutting a third down. They're just giant. And, and I'm not pruning them the right time of the year because I get no flowers. When is the right time to prune? You want to wait till spring, right, when the new growth starts. So that's usually... I have a lot of new growth on it because I cut them really far down last year. So I've got a lot of new growth, but no flowers. Okay, here's how you do it, though. So you you only cut a third of the branches all the way to the ground. So you okay. don't cut the main part down. You you take a third or half of the tallest branches, and you cut those right to the ground or where they come off another cane right by the ground. And this will okay. really thin it out. It'll be taller, but it'll be really thin, and the flowers will be twice as big. And you're not cutting. Now, you got to cut off the old flowers. I always leave mine on. And so I'll uh-huh. just cut one or two buds down at the top of each branch that I leave. You're going to get a ton of flowers because you're keeping a lot of the growth that occurred last year. Does that make sense? It does. But when do I cut that? Down to the ground. Is that still spring? or That's spring. Yep. You do okay, all the pruning so on hydrangeas in spring. So not in the fall? Not in the fall. If you do that, that's uh, going to cause lots of trouble. That's Because then the plant's got to go through the cold, and if you get a lot of freeze, you're going to lose a lot of the branches because the branches can freeze back. It, what it does, it kills the buds that are going to produce the flowers the next year. So you want to... You want to wait to do any pruning till early spring, right when new growth starts, and then your chances of things getting frozen back are a lot less. It works way better. Okay. What about lace leaf hydrangeas? Same thing. They're in. They're in the same, same exact uh, species. So. Okay. Yeah, right. and so you prune those exact same way. And let me tell you, though, you're gonna love how your hydrangeas look. They're way more open, thin, and elegant. And wait till you see how big the flowers are. Now, a million new ones are going to grow up, and you can keep some of those and take some of those out, you know, but you'll be doing that next spring again. Okay. All right. Yeah, they're giant right now, but... Yeah, they get too tall. There's a lot of new dwarfs. Uh, Nita Joe Roundtree just wrote an article in the Bellevue Botanical Garden uh, pamphlet. Uh, uh-huh. That tells about a bunch of new dwarf uh, uh, hydrangeas that are coming out that are really nice. So uh, you could probably look that up online, something like that. Botanic. Bellevue Botanical. Yes. 
It's called, uh, I don't remember what it, her article's buzzing around with Nita Joe. I know that. <laughs> so if you can't find those, send me an email at cisco.com. And I'll uh, send you. I'll send you the names of those new ones that are coming okay. out. Terrific! Thank you so much. All right, you're more than welcome. Thanks for some really right. great questions. See you, Melinda. Bye bye. All right, I think okay. We'll take a break here. Uh, when we come back, Steve will talk to you in Everett, ninety-seven three Cairo FM. Okay, we're back, and uh, hey, let's go to Everett and talk to Steve now. Hi, Steve. Hey, hey, Steve. What's going on? Hey, how are things going for you? Ah, tired of that smoke. Glad the cool weather's here. Yeah, me too. I'm with you. What you got going on? It's my friend. It's always it's always for a friend, right? <laughs> this must be an embarrassing question. <laughs> <laughs> now she lives in Idaho and uh, social media, Facebook. She posts. She has beautiful tomatoes, but when she cut into them, uh, little maggots or larvae, just you know, like you get when you're hamburger raw dog food, you know, oh. are in her tomatoes, and the seeds are already sprouting, you know. And they're white. Now, if it was me, I would have cut it or took it and put it in like a big mason jar and a cheesecloth on there. Let's I, see you know, what hatches little, out. That's a really yeah, neat see idea. See what it was. It was a guy thing. But <laughs> I told her that I'd call you and ask you. I'm thinking a crane fly or a leaf hopper or something got in there and laid eggs. But it's on all her tomatoes. You know, they're beautiful, they're ripe, they're red. But it's- they all got them? They all have this? Yep. yep. Well, you know, uh, one possibility is, uh, what's the name of that fruit fly? Spotted wing drosophila. Yeah, this is a fruit fly that attacks fruit at a much earlier stage than the fruit flies we used to have. And it can attack yeah. fruit growing out in your garden. Yeah, especially soft-skinned fruit and tomatoes might might be I think just that's soft what we enough. Call leaf yeah, leaf hoppers wouldn't yeah, have a, wouldn't have a larva because they just grow, grow, go through a series of little nymphs that look like the adults. So it'd have to be something like yeah. a like a fly, I, I probably. Have my term wrong, but yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, it's probably some sort of a fly, but I guess my advice would be probably for her to take it to the uh, to the local cooperative extension office and and. Have the master gardeners there look at it, and if they're stumped, then they would send it into the probably a, a, a insect identification lab that the state would run there. Yeah, because that could be hard, but but boy, there have been a lot of problems with this uh, new fruit fly that's moved in, and uh, and yeah, and so it could well be that that's what's happening. If it is, one of the things you could do is, and it works great with tomatoes, pick them earlier. Because tomatoes ripen up great in the house, so you don't, you know, some fruit you have to wait till it's ripe before you can pick it, but not tomatoes. So if she picks those tomatoes way before they're ripe, and you know, puts them somewhere where fruit flies can't get at them in the house, 
then, uh, yeah. you know, that how should about, solve the whole about, problem. How about covering them? You might you be know, able to, you might like be able to cover them with a really fine mesh, um, but it would have to be yeah, very black stuff. It'd have to be super fine because those those Drosophila, you know, they're they're like the fruit flies that that gather around the overripe bananas that you might have on your counter. So they're tiny little flies. So yeah. it'd, it'd have to be a super small like, yeah. mesh. Yeah. yeah so, so maybe you know, like Remay or Row Crop Cover, they make some that are really very fine mesh. Still let the air and light and moisture through. That might help, but I gotta. Hey, I gotta tell you one thing, Steve. If you trap yeah. the insects inside with that cover, then they're stuck in the restaurant, and I guarantee they're going to be checking the menu inside. So, hey, I wanted to tell you something else, Steve. I, I've seen this quite a bit where the seeds germinate inside tomatoes. I'm not sure what makes it happen. It's a bizarre thing, and it doesn't wreck the tomatoes. You can still eat the tomatoes, but but it's a curiosity more than anything. I I suppose if you know they start growing right out of the tomato, I don't think I'd eat that one. But uh, I would. I, I said no way, no how, no time, never ever. If there's bugs in there, first of all, I ain't eating it. Well, I don't blame but, you, but it's a little extra protein. That's right. That's what I said. She didn't think that was funny. She didn't. She didn't like that one. I. Well, hey, Steve. <laughs> thanks. Other, thanks a lot for the call. Wait. I have one other one. Okay. Just do with tomatoes. All right. I don't know if it's herb legend or not, but tomatoes. They say if you use like Epsom salt in like a fertilizer, lightly sprinkled around them, that you get bigger, brighter, and better tomatoes. Have you heard anything about that? There's a that's very controversial. So if you're uh, if you're short, I think it's magnesium that's in there. If you're short that in your soil, then adding Epsom salts can really help. But if you're not and you already have too much magnesium in the soil, then you get an overload of it and it can cause some real problems to the plant. So if you're going to think about using that. You can always experiment and try it and maybe grow your tomatoes in a different place next year if it doesn't work. Or you could do a soil test, and there's a million places that do them. They don't cost much, and you can get a soil test done, and then they'll tell you exactly what you need to add to the soil. It's a lot safer way to go. You're not going to accidentally you know, make it so you can't grow tomatoes there anymore or something like that. Excellent. Great. Hey, well, good luck, and uh, I hope your friend still gets to eat her tomatoes. <laughs> Take care, Steve. Bye. Thank you. All right. We're going to try and get Amber real quick because I think she has uh, answered a question for her once, and I think she's going to say if I was right or wrong. <laughs> Hi, Amber. Hi. Hi, Cisco. Yes, you were correct. Oh, I la, la. Answered. Yes. Oh, la, la. Indeed. Two weeks ago, you gave me some advice on some struggling gardenia. Ah, okay. And you said if it, if it works, it'll be a miracle. And I said, I'll call. There's a miracle in Seabeck. We had a miracle. Oh, cool. What Now, what was the what advice did I give you? <laughs> I should be able to remember. You, you surmised that the acid base was off in the soil. Acid base is a terrible way to describe that. Sorry. Acid level. And you recommended using an organic roadie uh, fertilizer, which oh, we did. Cool. 
and Great. the gardenia yellowed a bit, dropped some leaves, added some new leaves, and then produced blooms. Oh, too great. Well, I am so delighted, and I am so happy that you called and let everybody see that I really am a genius. <laughs> you are a gardenia genius. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, so you came to my talk at CBAC. You know, I did not. I spoke to you on the phone a couple of weeks ago, oh, but I sure would have okay. loved to go to the exotic plant garden in Townsend. That sounded great. Oh, cool. Well, hey, I so much appreciate your call, and thanks so much, and I'm really happy to hear it worked. Bye-bye, Amber. Okay. Hey, so I want to remind everybody, my guest today, Meryl Peterson, and I want to thank you so much for coming on today, Meryl. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. It's really great. So uh, check out his book. So it's Pacific Northwest Insects. It's easy to use. It's really great. The pictures are fantastic. And you even took most of the pictures. Yeah, I spent a lot of time crawling oh, around. That's not easy, taking pictures of insects. You, you are a calmer guy than I am, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so it's really a fun book. It's got great descriptions about the different insects. You can learn about that mantid bug that you talked about. I'll be reading that tonight <laughs> while I'm eating dessert, you know. Hey, so uh, thanks again for coming on. You can find this book. Uh, we have a link to it right on the front page of Cisco.com. Also have a picture uh, link to Merrill Peterson, professor, chair, and insect collection curator of the biology department of Western Washington. Thanks for listening. Bye.